Hello and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. I hope you have realized by now that radical life extension will transform the human experience in many ways. The technological and physiological aspects are just the tip of the iceberg. Society will be transformed in ways that are hard to predict. One aspect of human life that will play a role is spirituality. Religious people comprise a large segment of the world's population. How will extended lifespans affect the faithful? Will it be positive or negative? Not only for those who believe, but for those who do not. Here to dive into some of these questions is Dr. Kelvin Mercer, who is a professor of religious studies and someone who stays informed on the rapid pace of technological progress. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, professor of religious studies at East Carolina University and an academic advisor to the Christian Transhumanist Association, Dr. Kelvin Mercer. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. Good to be here. Yes, and you are a professor of religious studies, but also keep tabs on technological progress that is occurring rather rapidly nowadays. And religion and technological progress have often been in tension throughout history, it seems. Could you give us kind of the 10,000-foot overview of this dynamic in 2021? Well, those who follow technology knows it's been a, an exponential increase in technology. And my, my particular interest in is technology as it impacts human enhancement in radical ways. The particular corner that I work on is, uh, is the religious studies. You know, I would make the point, though, that for better or worse, religion is, it matters to people. And so I think working on the religious aspects of this is a way of getting this uh, conversation going in into the general public, which is something that I'm very, very interested in. Yeah, and it seems like a topic more people should be talking about, in my opinion, because people have a spiritual nature, of course, uh, it seems, and as we've noted from religions throughout history, yet oftentimes it seems like the promoters of technological progress seem to dismiss human spirituality or religiousness uh, as something to be expunged from the human experience. What do you think about that? You, have you noticed that? Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, transhumanism is a big umbrella. And so uh, we don't want to unduly generalize here, but uh, the transhumanist uh, projects and the transhumanist agenda is is science-based. Technology comes out of science. And so I think there's a kind of one view out there that, that uh, you know, religion opposes science. And, and there is this conflict uh, to some degree in, in, in our history. I think that, let, let me put it this way, different angles here. Let me put it this way, that secular transhumanists who are, let's say, anti-religious or think religion does... Uh, does harm, it is in their interest to understand religious people and religious behavior, because for better or worse, and we could say better, I mean, religion kicked up Gandhi and, and, and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King, and for worse, I mean, you could argue that side of it. I mean, the cross in, in the Christian religion, the cross and the, and the sword uh, created enormous amount of misery through colonialism and so on. Uh, but my point here is not, you know, whether religion is good or bad for society, but that it's out there. 
And so the transhumanist agenda, if it's going to be successful, needs to have a healthy conversation among the religious population. Uh, you know, just for practical matters like funding anti-aging research, uh, being open to breakthroughs when they come down the pipeline. So it's, it's in the practical interest of transhumanists to understand religion. But I'd go a bit farther than that and say that also I think that there are issues that, that are being discussed by academics of religion and theologians of the religions that can not only be useful for people of faith, but are also useful for kind of moving these conversations out into the general public, even the public that's not religious. And I could give examples of this, but just, just one is the role of the body, for example. This is a, an intense discussion among scholars of religion and, and theologians about the, the role of embodiment in these transhumanist scenarios. Uh, um, some of the more radical ones, like a whole brain emulation, mind uploading, and the role of the body and the importance of that and how that plays out in, in the future scenarios is not something that's just of interest to religion, people of, of, of religious faith. I mean, this is something the general public, if we can get this conversation more into the public square, the general public is going to be, you know, kind of interested in these kinds of questions too about embodiment. I could go into more detail. It's something that I've thought a lot about. That is an interesting point because I know some people who wouldn't consider themselves a member of a traditional religious faith, but they're spiritual nonetheless, some deep thinkers thinking about how the body and mind are connected to the universe on some level. Not only literally are we connected to our environment, um, but somehow... You know, some people talk about quantum mechanics and how uh, we are just connected to the universe through our embodiment in the universe. And that if we remove that, uh, there could be some trouble ahead. And that's kind of the point you're getting at here. Yeah. I mean, we know now from the scientific you know, world, a term is embodied cognition, that our the activity, the cognition in the brain is not can't just be is not just located there. We are a hormonal surge surging package. And so, you know, apart from religion, there are those who, you know, are making the case that embodiment matters. Now, the way in which this particular issue shows up in, in the, among the debates I have in the academic world is that some of my colleagues in religion are concerned about the, what they see as to be the denigration of the body in transhumanism. Now, I, I think that's a generalization. I don't think that's true in all cases, but there, you can make that case that Ray Kurzweil and others, you know, they want to have a cyber existence and get rid of the frail body that's not really serving us very well now uh, as a result of, of evolution at this point. I agree with my colleagues that embodiment is important, but I'll show you where I part from them. Just to pick one example, one, one doctrine that is an important doctrine in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that is resurrection. So resurrection can be resuscitation of a dead body. That's one type of resurrection. But a different type of resurrection that you find in the religious traditions is, a, I, and this is my term, I would call it 
transformational resurrection. So just to pick the Apostle Paul, a biblical writer that had an impact on Christianity, resurrection is a to soma pneumaticon. That's a Greek word, means body spiritual. So we're not talking about the resuscitation of a dead body. Uh, the vision there is a body that is imperishable, glorious, powerful. Now, that's pretty good for transhumanists, right? I mean, right. a body that is imperishable, glorious, and powerful. And so the transhumanists, let, let's take a radical transhumanist uh, project of mind uploading, whole yeah. brain emulation. So my colleagues, many of my colleagues argue against that project because we're leaving the body behind. I agree with them on embodiment. I disagree because the question is what kind of body? In fact, in the, in the Bible, they asked Paul, what kind of body is this, a you know, resurrected body? And so resurrection, transformational resurrection, is, does not have to be into a faceless, uh, cold computer platform, but with robotics and tissue engineering and so on, the body can be a resurrected, transformed body, right? Redesigned, new, revitalized, enhanced. And so there, the, the, this old Bible doctrine of resurrection can be understood to, to cohere with, I think, the transhumanist vision of renewed, revitalized by transformed and enhanced, sure. a radically enhanced body. So that one example, one example of how the religious conversation can, you know, go back and forth with the transhumanist vision. Of course, there's, this can go in different ways, right? Apart from religion, the general public is going to be a little more leery of the more radical projects, right? Now, like Aubrey de Grey's, what he, what he calls the boring wet approach, of having the same body but revitalized, that's going to be easier to swallow for the general public and for religious folk than a more radical whole brain emulation project. What I'm saying is that even the more radical projects, there are the religious traditions, in my view anyway, are flexible, have been flexible throughout history, have been nimble and can accommodate even some, some of the more radical, radical visions. And, you know, some of my colleagues disagree with me on that. That's okay. That's what academics. And you've talked with uh, many theologians and scientists uh, around the world. And is there a substantial difference between any of the major religions in the world right now, as far as acceptance of transformational type of technology? Um, I'd make two points. First one, a very quick one is that it's not healthy, I don't think, but at this point in time, the Jewish and Christian religions in terms of the academics, I mean, in terms of the general population, they're all the religions are way behind in sure. this conversation. Okay. I think, I think uh, the whole general public is way behind. I mean, there are things aborning that, that we need to get our hands around. But in terms of the scholarly or academic discussions, those uh, whose scholarship is operating in the context of the Jewish and Christian traditions are way ahead of of the other religions. Now, I've worked really, really hard to bring scholars from other religions into the conversation in the new book that, that we just wrote. We make a, a point in every chapter to talk about what I call the karmic religions. 
But there are differences. Yes. Well, let's just take uh, the one that I know, you know, probably many of your audience has an interest in, and that is uh, longevity or super longevity. So in the Judeo-Christian tradition and the Islamic tradition that comes out of that, you know, the model is one life, one death, and then however the afterlife is interpreted, right? And it's interpreted in different ways. If you move to the karmic religions, you got a whole different model. Karma, the law of cause and effect, reincarnation, the transmigration of the soul. So your actions, your karmic actions impact the, tra- the migration of the soul into the next you know, lifetime. All right, that's the traditional model, very different from the one life, one death, and then one afterlife. So the karmic religions are not as concerned about death as in the uh, so-called Western religions, because, you know, when you die, there's just a, there's another life right around the corner. Yeah. And in fact, there's millions of them. I mean, you, this, this thing happens millions of times. So the karmic religions will probably look at this in a different way than the, the so-called Western religions. So, for example, karma, traditionally, your actions impact your reincarnation in the next lifetime. If you start living for 500 years or indefinitely, then the karmic, karma is a law. In these religions, it's like gravity. You know, it's a law of cause and effect, but it, it it's a cause and effect that impacts in the spiritual realm. But when you apply it to super longevity, then the karmic impact, the focus won't be so much on the next life, but on this life as it unfolds over hundreds of years. So your karmic action now may may impact what your life is like 500 years from now. So again, these doctrines will have to get, you know, sort of expressed and processed in light of the uh, changes changes that are coming from the technology. Yeah, and that reminds me of something I saw recently online from someone I uh, follow and I've interviewed before who said that with the kind of rapid decline of religion or possible rapid decline of religion in the Western world and like in the U.S., that that could be a threat that people aren't anticipating that could pose societal trouble. You're talking about trying to reach out to people and make them prepared for the you know radical change that could be coming very soon. And most people think, ah, if religion goes away, no trouble for society, whatever, in the next five years. What's your thought on that? Let me just ask, what, what do you mean by trouble? You, you mean if, if Like societal trouble uh, as far as disruption in daily life or progress um, because religious people suddenly are rather exercised from society or they lose their faith uh, radically and quickly because of advancing technology and that somehow causes societal disruption. Look, I take a take a longer view. You know, I mean, you could look at the pandemic, for example. I mean, there's all kinds of surveys out there, the Pew Research Center and others about the impact the pandemic's going to have on religion. Are people going to really want to go back to their faith community and so on? But I, I take a longer view of this. Uh, the the demise of religion has been predicted, you know, and it it didn't happen. You know, with the rise of the scientific age, there, there was predictions that okay, religion uh, is a bunch of kooky old fashioned thinking and it's gonna go by the wayside. 
Well, it hasn't, and it has persisted, and human beings seem to be irrepressibly religious. Now, yeah, there'll be dips and, and peaks, but there's some kind of need that religion is meeting, and it's not necessarily a spiritual need. You could also argue it's a psychological or social need. And there have been theories of the origin of religion, you know, Freud and Marx. And there, but for whatever, however you interpret what religion is and why it arose, it does seem to be persisting. Now, you know, maybe it, maybe it will finally die out, but not in the foreseeable future. It's still very much a force. Right. I understand um, uh, where you're coming from there. That's an interesting perspective, obviously, because I know a lot of physicists sometimes and you know, pretty hardcore scientists, they come to the end of their career or advanced age and they kind of come to the question of purpose. And I heard it described as scientists climbing a mountain, trying to figure out what's the universe all about. And when they get to the top, finally, there's a bunch of theologians and philosophers who've been thinking about it their entire lives already. And there's a whole history of why human beings are spiritual and, and, and gravitate toward that type of, you know, towards faith. That, that's accurate. And, and let me put a, maybe a different frame on it here is um, that the relationship between religion and science is an interesting one. And there are different models. One model is a conflict model that religion and science are in conflict. Uh, historians of this conversation have, you know, suggested that that's not really um, an accurate model to depict most of most of history. That's kind of a new way of thinking about that. But in my view, when religion that is in conflict with science that argues that that ignores science, I think re that religion is more tenuous and may very well be on the on the decline. Maybe maybe for good, but, uh, but <laughs> that's my bias coming out. But that's just one model. Another model is that religion and science have nothing to do with each other. That science is about the objective world um, and the scientific method is a way you know, of, of understanding that, that world. And religion is about values and about community and that sort of thing. And so they don't have anything to do with one another. Now, in that sense, the rise of science is not going to threaten religion because religion has nothing to do with science in that model. Uh, another model, a third model, is the integration model. And this is uh, maybe a little bit, you know, like the story of the scientists getting to the, to the top and seeing the theologians, that the integration model is that science and religion uh, can be compatible and are you know different ways of looking at the same thing. So a way of or an issue that really helps flesh this out is the issue of creation versus creationism versus evolution. It's an old battle. And so the conflict model, you know, are those fundamentalists who you know reject uh, evolution, which is pretty established. And they argue about the details, but it's pretty established and versus the integration model, which sees, uh, you know, theistic evolution that, uh, you know, evolution is a, you know, wonderful way in which the divine will gets expressed, you know, gets played out or something like that. So I think that integration model and the separation model, I think religion has plenty of room to exist and grow in those models. 
The conflict model where religion sticks its head in the ground, I think that's more at risk. And I think that's why you see such a backlash, Mm. because many times a fundamentalist backlash is due to being threatened. Fundamentalism is a response to a a threat to identity. Sure. So that kind of religion, and I'll give you my bias, I don't care if it goes by the wayside. Okay. And I wanted to see if you could touch on a couple of different things. Uh, Many uh, listeners of the podcast are also cryonics supporters, and it wouldn't seem to be that cryonics necessarily would conflict with uh, most religions. It's just another method of life extension and that being frozen and and reanimated uh, wouldn't seem to cause too much trouble. However, cryonics doesn't have a lot of support (laughs) within uh, the wide areas of society or in religious communities either. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I mean, I think cryonics is a you know, reasonable kind of project to explore and, and, and investigate and, and, and work on. But it, you know, kind of on the surface of it to people who are not com- used to working with these kinds of questions and issues, it does seem far out, right? But cryonics is as evolved a lot from the old days when the, you know, the hippies were, you know, putting their pets in the freezer locker. And there's very serious people working on these issues now. And so I think there may have been a time when some cryonics advocates, you know, poo-pooed religion, but I think they got the idea that, that I was suggesting earlier that there is value in transhumanists in these conversations getting out and being understood by religious folk because religious folk vote and have impacts on anti-aging research and so on and how these ideas are, are explored. So the chronics organization I'm most familiar with is Alcor, arguably the, the leading chronics organization. And if you look at their material, they're very clear that cryonics is not religion, is not a religion, it's not about religion, because they understand that they that they're not trying to argue take over immortality or take right. So in fact, I many, many years ago I was invited. Um, I think Aubrey de Grey made this happen. Uh, was invited to one of the national conventions of Alcor to give a talk. And I think the whole the reason they wanted me there was you know, to understand religious people and religious behavior better so that cryonics wouldn't be so not just ignored, but laughed at. And, yeah, and yeah, laughed yeah. at, yeah. So, and so I did that and, and it, it was a fascinating experience for me. Okay, but I'm not sure if I got got away from your question or what. But I think you, you answered it pretty well, just that there doesn't seem to any be any fundamental barrier to cryonics versus other types of technological life extension or enhancement. But for some reason, cryonics just has been at the bottom of the totem pole as far as acceptance among the wider society in scientific communities and religious communities. And there just seems to be something sticky about it that people can't quite accept it. Um, and I didn't, uh, I was just trying to get your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions about it for sure that, you know, it's not freezing anymore. It, it's a vitrification process. It's a chemical process. And also that it's a, that it's expensive. It's very expensive. That's another Criticism, which is a little bit misunderstood, um, the general public doesn't realize, for example, that most cryonics, at least at Alcor, I think, most cryonics members 
um, or funding this through life insurance. And I tell my students, you know, uh, traditional college age students, because once I tell them about cryonics and tell them how much it costs, then they say, oh, well, wow, that's just for you know, rich people. And then I explain, no, if you're healthy and young, pennies, you know, for pennies, you can buy life insurance, sign it over to Alcor and you can sign up. So there's a lot of misconception about it. Okay. And Alcor, I think, works hard to, you know, to overcome these barriers. I think they're doing a better um, job nowadays to it, communicate yeah. better. And the interim period is like being in a coma, so, you know, so they, 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 they take no religious point of view on this. And uh, there are religious folk who are chronics members and involved. They're, they're probably a minority, but they're, they're out there. And uh, there are ways, I've done this in, in my, some of my writing, there are ways to conceptualize and understand cryonics from a, from a theological or Christian theological point of view as a way of, of embracing it. I'm not saying uh, that this will carry the day, but th there are ways. But yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It's been an uphill battle for, for, well, certainly, for the cryonics right. industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, one last question here uh, from a listener uh, who was interested in the Bible. You're a traditional biblical scholar originally. And the question is about the literal interpretation of the Bible versus symbolic. Now, you mentioned earlier that, you know, some of the fundamentalists, it's kind of a reaction to a, an attack on their identity uh, that they become very fundamental. But many people do interpret the Bible very, very literally. Uh, other people more symbolic. And I would tend to think you would be a little bit more uh, toward the symbolic kind of um, interpretation, as you mentioned, with the transformational resurrection, uh, what Paul was talking about. Where do you come down on that? Some people think like the Bible is kind of a guide for your life, for your spirit and your body, more than it is a literal interpretation of the actual history that happened uh, back in, you know, around the time of Jesus. Well, my, my own view is that the Bible, like any piece of literature, should be interpreted based on, you know, its purpose, its genre of literature. I mean, there are places in the Bible that are meant to be taken literally. There are plenty of places where it's meant to. There, in the Bible, there's myth, there's legend, there's poem, poetry, psalm, gospel, apocalyptic. And each genre of literature you know, should be interpreted based on. The, the canons of interpretation for that particular genre of literature. So now that probably makes me a, a liberal. Labels are, are libelous, uh, and we have to be careful about using labels, but we, we do use liberal conservative for judicial philosophy and so on, and so political philosophy. And religions, every religion has kind of a liberal conservative continuum. And on the extreme right side of the continuum, uh, lit a literal interpretation of, say, for the Bible, to hold to that firmly is, is probably more of a, a, a right-wing fundamentalist view. Now, the truth is, there are cons academic conservatives who understand what they're talking about, but most people who say you must take the Bible literally, they don't, have a, they don't, they don't really know what they're saying. They don't even believe that themselves. You know, there's a line in Jesus where Jesus said, if, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, there's no conservative on the planet that when you push them, they take that literally, I don't think, right? So 
when fundamentalists say you must take the Bible literally, they don't really mean that. What they really mean is you must take the Bible seriously and we want to fight all those heathen liberals. And that's it's kind of a political almost slogan. But a literal interpretation of every word of the Bible makes no sense. And, it, and it's just a contrary to good interpretation. Yeah, that's an interesting take there. Uh, one last thing here. Uh, your book is Religion and the Technological Future, Biohacking AI and Transhumanism. Uh, give the listeners a little pitch for the book, why they might want to pick it up. Uh, my favorite line in the book is the very first line in the book. And it goes something like that. The religions of the world will come to an end or thrive depending upon how they deal with the topics in the coming chapters. But uh, after some introductory material, you know, we have chapters on the, what I would call the five major radical enhancements, human radical enhancements. Uh, uh, physical, which the primary one is anti-aging, Cognitive, where we talk about AI and so on. Affective or emotional enhancements, all kinds of uh, possibilities there. Uh, moral enhancements. Uh, a lot of people aren't, don't realize that there's a raging debate among academics about moral enhancement. And then the fifth category, which my mentor, Ron Cole Turner, distinguished as spiritual enhancement where there's a new book out called Spirit Tech. I'm scheduled to review this for a journal and it hasn't come yet to my door, but it's a major book about all the technological, you know, from the God helmet to transcranial neurofeedback, transcranial magnetic stimulation and so on and hallucinogenic agents. There's research going on now. You know, some of it was done back in the sixties by Ram Das and Tim Leary uh, kicked out of Harvard. Well, he wasn't called Ron Doss at that time. That research went away because of laws and societal pressure, uh, but it's coming back. In Europe and America, there's, there's research now, hallucinogenic agents and their impact on mystical experiences. So anyway, that's a whole category, one of the five chapters. And then we have chapters on mind uploading, cryonics, whole chapter on cryonics, superintelligence, the singularity, Sure. Um, but that's basically the, the well, book in a, in a nutshell. Interesting and very comprehensive. I've worked with academics for 15, 20 years on this stuff, but it's really time to move this conversation out. And my author is a Canadian author, Tracy Trothan, co-author to move these conversations into the more general public and into classrooms. Uh, Dr. Mercer, thanks for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. Thank you, Justin. It will be interesting to see how society evolves to handle extreme life extension. Don't forget that the social, economic, and religious aspects of that change are all important to consider. The best outcome is for as many segments of society to benefit as possible from the change. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.